My name is Jonathan Chan. So glad that you can join me today as we continue our series on the life of David and me. Today, we'll be embarking on 1 Samuel chapter 17, the famous story of David and Goliath. But before we begin, let's start off with a video clip because, hey, why not? So enjoy the clip and we'll be right back. You should sleep with him. I'm on no sleep. No sleep. You don't know what it's like in there. All night long, things are creaking and cracking, and that red light is burning my brain. You look a little stressed. Oh, I'm stressed. Well, welcome back. Again, thank you for joining me as we embark on the life of David. When faced with a crisis, what do I do first? Well, I gotta be honest with you. Naturally, my stress level goes up. My blood pressure goes up. My bottle of bourbon starts to go down. And of course, some anxiety, if not a lot of anxiety, kicks in. And if you're like me, I quickly double check if my Old Spice deodorant is still working. Now, how I check? I'll leave it up to your imagination. Time also tends to speed up as well, even though we know that time is constant. See, whenever a crisis happens, it feels like I'm always in a rush, that I have less time to deal with it. When crisis hits, people say that my amygdala gets hijacked, kicks in, and my primitive survival instincts kick in. Just look at squirrels when an oncoming car approaches. I'm like a squirrel when a crisis happens. I'm stressed. But what happens next is what separates us from the animals. Sort of like the quote from John Wick. It's when our frontal cortex takes over, or what's left of it, if you're doing drugs. This is where decisions need to be made, right? Weighing in on the pros and cons, cost and benefits, acquiring knowledge, and trying to rationalize the best approach to the crisis at hand. That's what the frontal cortex does. This is where discussions, negotiations, and political maneuvering happens whether to collaborate and reach a consensus with others or make compromises. This is the time to see what you have at your disposal to address the crisis and try to think ahead of every possible consequence of each possible decision that is available to you. All this needs to happen within a finite amount of time because, hey, we're faced with a crisis. See, that's what separates us from the animals. I came from that world. And you know what? I love it. Although it was stressful at that moment, yes, granted, it raised up my blood pressure and, and I almost, quite frankly, almost lost it. Well, when I look back, it was fun. I love the pace, the interesting nuances that happen and how these crisis situations kick my brain into high gear. However, I also realized during those moments that I could have done better, that there was a better way of approaching a crisis if I slowed down just a bit to make room for one crucial step after my amygdala did its thing and before I let the frontal cortex kick in. What is that? That is prayer and worship. Now, you must be thinking, John, 
So every time I'm faced with a crisis, I need to bring in a worship team and bring in a pastor and try to break bread and sip a cup of wine. Although that's pretty handy when it comes to a crisis. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying to rent a church and try to do worship service before you make a decision or a when a crisis happens. I'm more about talking in lines with something David did in the story of David and Goliath. Worship and prayer that is similar to David's in the midst of a crisis. Now, you must be raising your eyebrow again going, okay, fine. How on earth did you get that out of a kid's story of David and Goliath? Well, let's begin. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 to 3, we have the crisis. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Sokho in Judah and Azekah at Ephes Damum. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. The author is painting a picture of what history buffs of World War I would call trench warfare, where both sides are at the stalemate and neither side wants to advance. Why? Because if you do, you're toast. Because if the other side is not advancing and you're advancing, you just get plucked off by the arrows and spears, right? So really, ideally, the war should be two sides advancing at the same time in order to be effective. But no one's going to do that because it's a game of chicken. So here's the crisis. Israel and Philistine are in a tense situation where both sides are wondering who will make the first move. And interestingly, just like World War I, where enemies were taunting each other, shouting profanities, and daring each other to make the first move, it's no surprise that these two opponents were doing the same at each other. It just so happens that this story is a little bit biased because it's written by a Jew, and so naturally he wouldn't say that the Israelites were doing the taunting, he would say the Philistines were doing the taunting because, oh no, God's holy people would never taunt others, would they? Here's what the author wrote. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Wait, if Goliath was so big and strong and mighty, like in the passages before that that I kind of skipped because he was apparently with a nine-foot-tall giant, why didn't Goliath just advance to the other side and lead the Philistine charge like Wonder Woman did in World War I? I know why. Women act while men just talk. End of story. I can see why the Israelites didn't want to go over there. Come on. Like, it, what are you, nuts? This is a game of chicken, right? So when the crisis hits, Saul and the Israelites naturally responded the way we would respond by allowing our amygdala get the best of us. What are you kidding me? I'm not going to be the idiot to go first. And how do I know that we will, we will have a fair fight? You're just going to pluck us off with your army. And interestingly, the Philistines did the same thing. They just kept taunting at each other, taunting and taunting. What's the real problem is that this war might go on forever. 
And if I was Saul, that's what I would fear as a leader. Just like the trench warfare did those soldiers in at, in World War I, if I was Saul, my greatest fear is that my soldiers will starve when the supplies run out. My soldiers would be too tired and weak if this goes on too long. And if indeed the Philistines do catch us at that moment, we're doomed. This is the crisis that Saul and the soldiers that I think we're facing. Not necessarily Goliath as, as the big crisis, but Goliath was almost like the metaphorical image of the crisis that Saul is fearing that it is currently happening. The long drawn out war where the one with the most resources will win. Let's move on. Verse 12. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadad, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. Wow, David's doing two duties at once, being a soldier and being a shepherd. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Did we really need to read about David's bio again after we already read it in chapter 16? The author of this story says, oh, yes, you do, because you probably missed something important that I mentioned in chapter 16. And because you're such a good Sunday schooler, I'll remind you again. David is from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, which means David is a descendant of Judah the tribe that long ago was prophesied by Jacob to be the tribe where kings come from. A foreshadowing attempt by the writer to legitimize David's kingship to say, hey, David is the guy because he was prophesied a long time ago. Let's move on. Verse 16, for 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. Now, he's not right in front of the Israelite army. He's over where the Philistines are, but he's kind of like in front, right? One day, Jesse said to David, Hey, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Does this kind of ring a bell of an older story of where a younger brother was the favorite one was told by their, his father to go check out on his older brothers and that didn't turn out that well? Remember that? It's called the Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Well, same thing here, right? Here is David's dad, Jesse, telling David, hey, go check out on your brothers because see how they're doing and report back to me. Knowing full well that David was anointed by Samuel and the rest of the brothers were snubbed from having their having being anointed as king. It was David. So why would you do such a thing? But anyways, that's the story. So Jesse tells David to go and check out on his brothers. Now, the most important point in this passage that stuck out for me was the 40 days. 40 days. Now, we don't really know if the stalemate has gone on for 40 days. But like many of the Bible authors, they take liberty in using numbers as a metaphor. And sometimes as a psalmist, if you read the Psalms, they use numbers because it kind of rhymes well in Hebrew. Something that we need to remind ourselves constantly as Bible readers today. 
when numbers are mentioned, it's not necessarily literal. It's a metaphor. So, for those keeners out there, something big usually happens after the mention of the number 40, right? For example, the story of Noah's Ark. The Israelites wandering in the desert is another. And, of course, Jesus in the wilderness. Big things usually happen, like God's deliverance or God's revelation or God's provision usually happens after the number 40. This story is no different. If we were a Jewish reader, which last time when I looked down, I am not, the mention of 40 should be read equivalent as the turning point or a watershed moment. So remember the stalemate? A God thing is about to break the stalemate and it's coming right now. So, in verse 20, David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts, as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other again, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters, like Mulan, for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance at Israel? What are you, deaf, David? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that, is that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is a reward for killing him. Wait. Weren't the opponents already face to face in the beginning of this story? Apparently, it looks like the Israelites and the Philistines agreed that they should go back to camp and get some sleep and pick up where they left off the next morning. It's almost like they just shook hands and say, okay, we're both tired. Let's go back to camp, take a little cat nap and come back and we'll do it again, taunting at each other. So again, the next morning, the Israelites come out with a smidgen of bravado, but was done once they heard the taunts again. Saul knew that he had to break the stalemate soon and in order to do so, he had to accept Goliath's offer to end this. This is where his frontal cortex now takes over. What better way to entice a soldier to come forward than to give him a hot wife and tax exemptions? A girl worth fighting for. But who can face the giant to not only break the stalemate and win? If you recall, Saul was pretty much the biggest and tallest Israelite at that time. Remember, he was one head over everybody else. So the logical person to fight against a 9-foot giant is a 7-foot giant, right? And have a chance of winning would be Saul. Yet Saul, being rational here, knew that his chances were slim. And if he gets killed or gets injured, it'll be the end of Israel for they would have no leader. So who's up? So he's trying his best to entice somebody else, another soldier brave enough to face Goliath. Verse 32. David now pipes up. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. 
You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. He said when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb by it from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. You go there, David. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear, will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Saul said this, which is really interesting. Man of war since his youth, as he described Goliath. That's exactly what Saul's servant said in chapter 16 when his servant introduced David to him. Let's blast back over to chapter 16, verse 18. One of the servants said to Saul, One of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also a fine-looking young man that looks like George Clooney, and the Lord is with him. Did Saul forget what his servant told him about David? Or did Saul just look at David's physical appearance and measured him up to Goliath? David was already a man of war since his youth. But he went further telling Saul that he was more than that. He was also a man who can protect what is valuable. And if Israel is God's special possession, then it's more than just protecting sheep here. How much more will David protect God's people from the Philistines? Here's the turning point, the watershed moment. Saul immediately rationalized and measured up David against Goliath based on physical appearance, which makes sense, as we already come to know, Saul is a man who depends on his own judgment and intuition. Whereas David, his attitude has always been putting God first and trusting that God will provide even when things don't seem to appear rational at first. We see David worshiping God even during a crisis, worship that entails putting full trust in God and giving God all the glory, honor, and gratitude before rationalizing. Now, some of you may be asking, how is David worshiping again? I didn't see him singing or clapping hands or I didn't hear any Chris Tomlin music playing in the background. No, David's form of worship is how we should all have a heart of worship. And that is out of humility, submitting to God and giving God all the glory and honor and handing the time, the content of the time, the moment of the time to God before any rationalizing before any of our plans take into effect. Verse 38. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. In other words, he never worn Saul's armor. Because if you think about it, he has worn armor because he is a man of war. He's a brave warrior, remember? So, he hasn't, just, he hasn't worn Saul's armor. That's what the author is saying. So David says, I can't go in these. It belongs to you, he protested Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him. 
Two on one. Very fair fight. Sneering in contempt at his ruddy-faced boy, Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Funny that Goliath only saw the staff of David and didn't see the sling. Maybe David concealed it, a hidden weapon. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. The God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. With rationalizing, Saul immediately thought about what was best for David. Since David was on the front lines of battle, he didn't have time to go back to camp to get armor that fitted him, or even get David's armor for that matter. So Saul did what he thought was best, and was to give his own armor to David. King armor. Oh, the irony, right? Saul did what he could and thought was best given the situation and the limited time he had. Saul goes and says, this is it though, the battle is on, and we can't waste time. Yet for David, he says, what? He didn't say anything, actually. What did he do first? He went to a quiet stream. Interesting. In the midst of chaos, a crisis, and a time that appears to be speeding along, David quiets down and goes to a stream to pick up stones. And not only that, he's making himself vulnerable here, right? In the midst of battle. You're kneeling, you know, you're sitting or kneeling or sitting beside a stream and picking up stones. Aren't you like a clear target for a javelin to just spear you to? But David did. Some scholars like Eugene Peterson gives a great explanation as to what David was doing at the stream. David, Eugene Peterson says, was praying and handing over this crisis and moment to God giving the battle over to the Lord of Heaven's armies. David did the crucial step before his rationalization kicked in that Saul neglected to do, to give the moment to God first and foremost through prayer and worship. Verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack David, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn along the road from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. David took the Philistine's head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. As Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. Well, find out who he is, the king told him. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. 
Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said, and David replied, His name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Interesting how Saul still does not remember what his servant told him who David was back in chapter 16. But again, that's not the point the author wants to make here. His point is that David is living up to the expectations of him being king since he's in the line of Judah and that he is legit. All right. David defeated Goliath with a slingshot to the head and beheads Goliath. <laughs> nice. Let's summarize by comparing Saul's actions and David's. I admit, I would have done the same thing like Saul. When a crisis is in front of me, after my natural responses aside, I would want to find a solution right away. And hence, my frontal cortex comes online and my mind will be firing in all cylinders. Saul did the same. Sure, he said to David, quote, may the Lord be with you. But that was just a mere gesture as opposed to completely mean what he said. It's sort of like me when I'm faced with a crisis. I would say to God, okay, God, help me here, and that would be it. But really, I don't spend any more time with God, but rather just leave it as is, thinking that just by saying it, it's my bare minimum as a Christian, and hope that by saying it, superstitiously, that whatever crisis I'm faced with and whatever methods I'm going to use, that it'll turn out just fine because I said it. Sort of like a lucky charm. Saul basically did the same thing. Saul basically did what he had to say, said what he had to say by saying, may the Lord be with you. But really, he jumped right after that with getting to work and quickly rationalizing by giving David his armor. For David, he took a different approach. After his natural response, which was anger, subsided, before he went and tried to find a solution, he worshipped by submitting everything to God. And then, to me anyways, the most crucial of them all, he carved out a chunk of time in prayer and silence along the stream, when really, logically and rationally, you shouldn't be doing that in the midst of a crisis, at a stream, in the middle of a war, to get his mind aligned towards God, align his heart and trusting God was more important for David than to go at it with a solution. Then afterwards, when he finished, he went to work finding a solution, which was to see which stones would pummel this douchebag's head. Because remember, he's a man of war and a skilled sniper at that. He's not some dude off the street without any experience and God somehow guided the stone like a Patriot missile to Goliath's head. David is strong, he's a man of war, he's a soldier, and he's a skilled slingshooter. So David could have just jumped right in to grab stones, right? And just slingshot David. I mean, slingshotted Goliath. But the author intentionally emphasized the scene at the stream to show you and I that prayer is the crucial step in the midst of crisis. Prayer and worship to God before we make important decisions is a crucial step. I look back at my life uh, during all the times of crises, and in my observations, when I do carve out, intentionally carve out time that is totally irrational in doing so, but it was the right thing to do, to carve out time to worship and pray to God before, during a crisis, 
I found myself seeing the crisis with a different pair of eyes. I saw the crisis better. You could say that it opened my eyes to a broader spectrum of what the crisis involved so that I could approach it in a better way, to approach it in a godly way, the right way. If I didn't, and I just jumped right into the crisis and tried to find the solutions and maybe say just a brief prayer just because I just treat it as a good luck charm, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But regardless of what the result, I still find myself telling myself that I could have done better, that there was a better alternative, that there was an alternative where both sides would not be compromised, that both sides would win that both sides would flourish and no one would get hurt or would get hurt. That I kept on saying to myself, man, if I slowed down and I dedicated a chunk of my time to pray and worship God during this crisis, I could have done better. I could have done it in a godly way, a way that pleases God. Amen.